Amen. Psalm 73, much like uh, three weeks ago when we looked at, I believe, Psalm 88. Well, these, some of these psalms, many of the psalms are written by David, but not all the psalms are written by David. This particular psalm, uh, like one of the earlier psalms I covered, was written by Asaph. And so remember that the tribe of Levi is appointed to be in charge of worship, everything that goes on in the temple. And so Asaph was of the tribe of Levi. Uh, what made him stand out was the fact that he was uh, ex extraordinarily gifted. David put him in charge of things. He was musically gifted. He could write. He was gifted. David gave him some of uh, his own personal psalms to maybe compose to music. I would suppose that's the way that went. And uh, he found favor in David's eyes. He became a leader among those who served in the uh, tabernacle, the temple in Jerusalem. And then um, he became the father of uh, a family, of a clan of people that were uh, very uh, highly regarded musicians. And so he is the author of this Psalm. Now, this psalm examines what happens when we get mad at the injustice of this life. So this should be um, the sort of conversation where every single one of us can relate to this. Uh, we all experience this. This isn't some uh, unicorn experience, but this is something that every one of us experiences in multiple ways. It's common to our lives, and we can relate. But I just want you to understand that it's, it, God is breathing this uh, message through this particular vessel who, is, who has been quite successful in ministry, in his calling, if you will. And, um, and so what happens is he becomes very bothered by what he sees around him. Maybe you can relate to that. He, he sees the wicked seeming to prevail. He, see, he sees that uh, they seem to do better in life in certain ways than those who are godly. He's frustrated because uh, we shouldn't expect that those who live for God um, would, would, would struggle in a universe that's run and orchestrated by a moral sovereign God. And if God is in fact, which he is in control of all things, then it would only make sense that the plans of the wicked would continually fail and flounder. And not only that, but that their, their wickedness, their wicked choices, and all such things like that would would leave them in open shame. Wouldn't that just make sense? I mean, that's, that's what uh, any human wisdom would conclude and reason. And yet what Asaph saw is the same thing many of us see is quite different. And so I want you to understand, I, I'm going to say this to, to push you, and then we'll work to get you to receive it. But, I mean, we all doubt. 
We've all been through seasons of doubt. We've all, they're all, we all have levels of doubt. We all have things that we doubt. If we're sincere, if we're uh, true and zealous in what we uh, claim to believe and profess to believe, then, they, then we have encountered areas of doubt because there's no way to, you, you don't just go from A to Z uh, spiritually. It doesn't work like that. To genuinely grow and to genuinely be transformed, you're going to have to weave through all different levels of doubt. And the more you know God and the more uh, complex, uh, the more of the complexities of God that you wrestle with, you're going to have things that are going to drive you crazy for a while. And what I want you to understand about doubt is this, is that much of what will appear as intellectual doubt is really anger at the way that God is running the world. See, it might begin as doubt, but doubt doesn't have to linger very long before it becomes frustration, and frustration doesn't linger very long before it becomes anger, especially when it is personally affecting us. And so it, it would just be extraordinarily helpful for you to receive this truth, to know that when you're in a season of, of intellectual doubt, uh, there's a really good chance that you're, you're angry. That's why you're in that season of doubt. And when you're dealing with people who are in doubt, they're angry. That's why they're doubting. Uh, and they may not come across angry, but they're angry. That's where the root of that is. So let's set the stage, because what, what Asaph does is he takes the uh, ingredients and lays them all out for us on the counter, and then he mixes them all together and makes this big cake, and, and then we'll be able to uh, see how all this works together. So uh, setting the stage. So the first thing we see, for example, and by the way, this is on page 668 in that Pew Bible, which all these verses will be on here. Um, but if you want to follow in exact order, you can see it there on page 668. Okay. So let's set the stage. Here, here's the ingredients. First of all, we have a man who has worked hard at being good. That's the first ingredient. that, Because if you haven't worked hard at being good, then you have nothing to be angry about, and you're, you're, you're not frustrated with your doubt because you don't care. Because if you haven't worked hard, then you expect to doubt. Doubt doesn't even bother you because you really don't even care, right? So you got to be sensible about these things. So he's worked hard. See, in verse 13, he says, Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. So he's saying, Look at what well, I've done these things, God. I've worked hard at this. We know about Asaph's life. We know things about him. We know that he's been somebody who has been dedicated to his craft and to his uh, spiritual commitment. Now, not only has he worked hard at being good, but he suffered. So now you can see where it starts to get interesting. Because if he just worked hard at being good and everything went fine, we wouldn't have a problem. But he's worked hard at being good and things haven't gone good. He says in verse 14, for all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. Now we, we don't know, and this is all by divine design. That's why the Bible doesn't tell us. We, 
you know, we don't know if this was sickness or some trouble in his family or some economic disaster, financial calamity, some terrible disappointment that he faced. We don't know if this is emotional pain or spiritual pain or physical pain. And why do we not know that? So that everybody in the room can relate to what's happening. That's why you don't know that. And, but here's what we know. It was real, it was serious, and it was, it was painful. So he's worked hard at being good. He suffered. But then on top of that, that in and of itself is a recipe for disaster. But if you really want to put the cherry on top and bring in the, the, the real trouble, to make it worse, others seem to prosper. So now you have the perfect trifecta, the perfect storm. I'm working hard to be good. Things aren't going good. And other people are doing good. See, he says in verse 4 and following, he starts talking about, and you can tell that's why this is the longest part of the psalm. He says, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, uh, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, Pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak softly. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues walk through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. So you see the burr that's under his saddle? And so he's frustrated. He's angry. I'm sure that in the very beginning of this episode in his life, it started with some doubt. Like, God, why are these people seeming to do good? Why do they seem to prosper when they don't follow you and they don't do things the way they are? And here I am working hard to do all these things. It's not working good for me. And, you know, we've all been in the scenario. So there it goes. But as things get worse for him and the more his attention's drawn to things getting better for others, it becomes deep, debilitating anger and frustration. He's looking at people who seem to make no effort whatsoever at leading a moral life. And yet, they seem to prosper. Now, today is no different. The world is filled with people who are successful, who are powerful, who are influential, who seem to have everything that the world has to offer, and yet they're abusive or they're cruel, they're, they're you know, wicked, they're oppressive, they're, they're idiots, but yet... It seems like everything they touch turns to gold. That's not anything new. So when you mix the combination of these ingredients, it can create a weight that can seem unbearable. Now, for, for some, maybe many of us in the room tonight, we're not under this seemingly unbearable weight. Now, all these things are going on, but why don't we feel this weight? 
Because without ingredient number two, see, if we're not suffering, we can, we can navigate. But when you add suffering into the equation between those other two things, here comes trouble. Then we begin to, to really start to feel it. And the pressure comes on. To the degree that he says, look in verse 16, he says, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. It was just too painful. He couldn't take the pain. It was just too much. Now, let's think for a minute, logically. Let's just think. Let's have a thoughtful, logical, rational conversation about some principles. The first one is this. Every human being bases their life on one or two ultimate concerns. Now, I'm, I tried to think to myself about, you know, what would be your reaction to that statement? Like, some of you might think, well, hmm, I don't think that's right, or I don't get that, or I don't know. And then I thought to think, now, what kind of moron would not get this? You know, what, what are you going to say in your head that's going to uh, try to refute this. In other words, think about yourself. You don't live your life for 14 things. No human being does this. Nobody does this. You are driven by one primary thing, maybe one A and one B. It drives you. It's your central thing about you. Everyone that knows you knows what it is. Everyone. Everyone that works with you knows what it is. Everyone that went to school with you growing up knows what it is. Anybody that spends time and hangs around, especially if they hang around your family, they know what it is. We all humans are driven by just a few things at the top. And then all the other things that we're interested in, all the other things that we do, all the other things about us are derivatives of that one thing or those two things. See, anything else that I'm into is because it's connected to this. You're not into, you are not, you could not name me if I gave you four hours. You could not come up with three things that drive you that are unrelated. You could not do it. Because humanity doesn't operate that way. We're driven by something. And then everything else flows out of that something. That is the central principle. How do I know that's true? Because that's the whole function of idolatry in our life. You cannot read anything in the Bible about humanity and not understand that. We're idol factories. That's how idols work. That's why God says, the first thing God said was, do not put anything before me. Why? Why didn't he say, do not put things before me? He just said, don't put any one thing before me. Because he's telling you something about yourself. He's saying, I already know that you've got one thing that drives you. And I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying is, is, put me above that. There's one slot at the top for all of us. For all of us. And everything else flows out of that thing. Okay, 
That's principle number one. Next principle. So now that's true. Then whatever you're living for, living your life for, will determine how you see right and wrong. Because that thing, okay, whatever's sitting on the throne, whatever's that thing that drives you. Now, it's not what you say drives you. That's not what I'm talking about. It's what actually drives you. So here's how you know what that is. It's what you think about when you can think about anything you want to think about. It's what you do with your free time. It's what you do with your extra resources. It's what you do with your, it's what you put your, that's where your emotions are invested. It's not what you say. What you say is irrelevant. Because you, what you say is what you want to be true. But that thing, you just follow your emotions, your money, your, and think of everything Jesus said. Think of, think, of, think of what Jesus said about our emotions. Think about what he said about our treasure. Think about, and it all leads you to that thing. It'll all lead you there. It'll lead you right to it. And that thing determines how you see right and wrong. Because now listen, imagine in your mind that go back to before, before God saved you. What was the thing that drove you? What was the thing that you lived for? Now, whatever that thing is, here's what I know. I didn't even know you, and I don't know what the thing is, but I can tell you exactly how this worked. Whatever that thing was, anything that threatened came against, harmed, spoke negatively of, and was in any way against or a threat to that thing, you considered wrong. And anything that was for, supported, endorsed, enabled, that thing you considered right. And the same thing is true tonight. You have one thing that drives you. And that thing determines how you see right and wrong. I'm not talking about like, you know, I'm, not ta- I'm, talking, I'm talking in a much grander scale than, you know, whether or not you, you know, obey the speed limit or think it's right or wrong. I'm talking about uh, the things that bother you. See, there's a lot of wrong things in the world that don't bother you. But there's wrong things in the world that bother you. Why do they bother you? Why do those things bother you? Because it has to do with what's at the top. That that thing at the top, that something is It shapes your worldview. Everything about how you see the world around you. Now, you still with me? Principle number one, true. Principle number two, true. So if one is true, then therefore this is true. If those two are true, then therefore we're just going logically. Okay, then what does that mean? Okay, well now it is impossible to live your life for something without expectation. Because to do so, you would be certifiably insane. You understand? Uh, Just 
Imagine. You live your life for this thing. Well, why do you live your life for that? I have no idea. You see, that, that can't be. So the answer, okay, there's something there. It's shaping. It drives your life. It shapes how you see right and wrong. Now, what are your expectations about that? Because you have them. Because you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be driven by this thing if you didn't have expectations. So what are the expectations? See, you allow that thing to drive you because you haven't all your life been driven by the same thing. You know that? Especially when you were a teenager, it was like boop, boop, bloop, bloop. You were trying all kinds of things, trying to figure out which one you liked. And what makes you change them? When, you're, when the expectation fails and, and reveals that following this thing won't yield what I thought, then it's out. I'm trying something new. Or even the, the, the you might not have, have fully experienced the failure of it, but you sense that it's not going to work. You start to, it starts to look bad. See, depending on your personality, some of you are very, you know, uh, uh, you know, jumpy. So it starts to go bad, and you're like, oh, changing. You know, you're chicken. You're scared. You're not going to, you know, you're not gamblers. So when you were lost, you just change it. You were just looking for something, trying to find it. So it's got to have expectation, or it cannot function in that role. These are just human essentials. So in reality, we don't live our lives for something. We live our lives for what we expect that something to provide. See, whatever's in the spot, whatever's top dog, we're really not driven by that, are we? No. See, the that doesn't even really matter to us. It's our expectation of what that will give us that drives us. Because we wouldn't follow it. If, if See, if that wasn't attached to an expectation, we wouldn't follow it. Which proves the point that we're not following the thing. We're following the expectation that flows from it. Have I lost anybody? All right. If you can just stay with the pieces, it'll all come together right here. ASAP will bring it together for us. So whatever matters to us not only shapes our, our worldview and our understanding of right and wrong, but it, it's always, always, always attached to expectations. It has to be that way. Now, if all that is true, let's take the, the spotlight off ourselves and shine it on Asaph and learn from him and allow it to illuminate our own minds and hearts so that we can learn for ourselves. Asaph had something at the top, just like me and you. And it shaped his understanding of his worldview and his understanding of right and wrong. And it, there were expectations attached to it. So what was it? Well, we know. 
His life was focused on serving God and obeying God. To which you say, man, that is great. But remember what I said. It's not the something. You can be focused. Your something may be serving God and obeying God. But if your expectations are jacked up, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. That's what this psalm is teaching us. He's got the right something, but... And so what, what happens is his foundation... See, that thing at the top of our lives... It's our foundation. That's what, that's what everything holds up, everything around us. So if it crashes, everything below crashes because everything below is a derivative of that thing, right? So if, if the foundation falls out from under that main thing, everything else crashes too. And so he's about to lose his foothold. Look at what he says in verse 13. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. I've washed my hands in in innocence see he's all these things that he's devoted himself to that he's done he's i've said god i've worked to be pure and i've worked to do these things the right way and i've tried to do a, the the good way and on and all this and it's about to erode out from under him well it has that's why he's writing this psalm because he's he's bent he's frustrated he's mad he's angry and he's he's on the brink of switching pulling this thing out and just saying, the heck with this. I'm going to go join them. I'm going to go do that. What is causing Asaph to feel the weight of injustice and discouragement is his unmet expectations. That's what crushes us. That's what devastates us. That's what That's what makes everything collapse. Because remember, here we all are on church in church on a Wednesday night. So we're people who just by the sake of proximity are saying, hey, we're here because we believe in, we trust in. This God who, we, who, the, who tells us that he's unchanging. Like, he doesn't waver. He doesn't change. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't take days off. He doesn't have sick days. He not, he's not, doesn't forget things, doesn't miss details, doesn't. But yet we're all over the map. Now, God hasn't moved an inch. He hasn't changed one bit. But, but you got all these people that are, that are saying, oh no, here he is, and we're and and they're all over the map. Why? Because same something, different expectations. That's what all the chaos is from. See, you, you that's why it's so important for you to take seriously your 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 what you ingest. That's why I'm always admonishing you to be fiercely passionate about 
being in the presence of people that are serious about Bible exposition and also very cautious about taking in random information. Do not trust. Don't, don't be studying a bunch of weird stuff. It's going to cause you major problems if you do. You better make sure that you're vetting out the things that you're taking in because where are those expectations getting shaped? Who's shaping them? Is what's at the top shaping them? No. It's, it's your understanding of what's at the top. It's your idea, ideology of what's at the top. So you got to be very careful, very cautious. And so as unmet expectations start to erode, so he's asking the question, maybe I've been living for the wrong thing. Maybe I should live for fame or for comfort, or maybe I should do it the easy way. Or, because here's the thing. Let's be honest now. Here's a great example. You could go to, um, I, I hesitate to say most churches, and they're going to lead you astray on this very thing. Few people have the guts to tell you that following Jesus is going to be really hard. It's going to kick your teeth out a whole bunch of times. Because they just don't have the courage to speak the truth. And, they, and so they, they think that the way to, to, to get people to respond is to get them to believe that it's going to be easy and that God's going to make it better and that things are going to... But it's just a, a bait and switch because eventually the truth is going to be found out. Right? So here we just, we just come in guns blazing right off the bat. That's, that way we just vet out the real from the phony right off the bat. It's just easier to get it over with. Let's just rip the Band-Aid off. Right? Spare me the, you know... I don't want to hang around for the year while you flounder around trying to figure out whether or not this is something you're, you know, I, I mean, let's just get it all out on the table right from the beginning. Yeah. And so he's wondering, like, maybe, man, you know, I should just do it easier. Think of all the things you could be doing tonight. They'll be easier. Most of what, none of what, you could be doing a hundred things tonight that wouldn't be pressing into you to think you be sitting at home just vegged out. But you come in here and somebody's going to make you think. I mean, this is never easier. It's never easier. At least not in the, uh, you know, in the beginning stages of the. Now, there's moments down the line. Oh, yeah. Trust me. When somebody you love dies, this is unbelievably easier. If you're saved and you know they were saved. Yeah. There's big moments, but, but in the grinding daily, just rubber meets the road. Oh, it's not. It's way harder. Way harder. You're, you spend, if, you're, if you're even remotely dedicated to living for God, then every day of your life you're swimming upstream against everything else. Right? Yes. It's not easier. So Asaph's just going, well, the heck with this, man. 
I mean, I ought to just do what they're doing. Look at all the fun they seem to be having. So see, he's on the brink of finding a whole new foundation for his life. Which is not that hard for us to imagine. I mean, I think many people in the room have been there. Or, or at least seen other people do it. See, he says in verse 2, you, you notice something about the Psalms. The Psalms always start with the conclusion and then follow with the explanation. So see, in the first two verses, he, he's, he's, he's lets you know right off the bat, I got this figured out. Now here's the, here's the pain I went through to get there. So in verse 2, he says, but as for me, my feet had, did they, did they stumble off? Did they slip off? No, they almost, they nearly, he was, he was right up at the edge. And he was thinking, I'm about to just quit, about to shuck this whole thing, about to go back to the old way. I'm about to revert back to who I used to be. But he didn't. He was close. And the danger for us is to think that doubt is just a problem for people who are weak-minded. It is not it is a problem for those who are truly devoted. See, when you're truly devoted to God, in a lot of ways, I would say that you put yourself at a higher risk for, uh, to, to walk through this. To which you say, well, now that doesn't make any sense. Well, sure it does. Because the more you, the more you devote yourself to God, the more God opens up opportunities to use you, which means, so, so let me explain it to you this way because it's the easiest way for me to explain it to you. God is like the ultimate boxing trainer. That's my favorite way to illustrate it. And so he, he starts a new class, and so look, all these people come in, and he's the trainer, and you're all, you know, you all got your new, you know, shoes on, and you know, you're, you've been... You know, and everybody thinks they're going to be the next heavyweight champion in the world. And he's like, okay. And so he starts going through the process. And one by one, you start flaking out. Bloop, you out. You gone. You done. You, you quit. It's too hard. It's too hot. It's too. And then, then there's a group left over. And they're the ones that are going to, you know, they're serious. Okay. Now, everyone in that group is not equal. And so then... So you got some people in that group that are, that are committed to that have a uh, have a great work ethic and a great man there they have they 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 got what it takes and so they're focused and they're they're on time and they're prepared and they're eating the right things and they're exercising and they're doing all the right things right and so what does the great trainer do does he treat everybody in the group exactly the same no or he wouldn't be a great trainer you know what he does? Who, the, those that work the hardest, he gives the greatest opportunity to advance up the ropes, doesn't he? Yes. And guess who fights for the heavyweight champion of the world? The Mike Tyson and the group. That's who. Not the slacker who's got a lot of physical gifting and is real energetic and super personal and everybody loves him, but he's got a Twinkie problem. 
You're a slacker. That's how it works. So therefore, in order to fight for the heavyweight champ in the world, what do you got to do? You got you to learn how to take a punch. Can you read a book about taking a punch? You know how you learn to take a punch? By getting punched. That's how. And guess what? Getting punched is never fun. And so while you're getting punched and you're thinking, God, why are you, why are you, right? While that's happening, God's preparing you. He's saying, hey, I got another belt up here that you're fixing to get. So hang in there. But you don't know that. You're just, you know, taking it, you know, shot, shot. And you're thinking, here I am. I'm the first one here. I'm the last one to leave. I'm eating right. I'm working hard. I'm doing, and I got slacker done. I'm doing all these things, and I'm getting my face smashed in. Why? Because I got bigger things in store for you. That's how it works. So, so what do you think? So doubt is, is yes, doubt can be a sign of weak-minded people, sure. But boy, don't make the mistake of limiting to that. Because listen, if you've never struggled with doubt, I would say that you're probably not uh, competing for any belts. You know who, guess who doesn't struggle with doubt? See, the people at the bottom of the uh, uh, food chain, I'm trying to be politically correct here. The people at the bottom... The weak-minded people, they're struggling with doubt. The people at the top that are super devoted, they're, they're struggling with doubt because it's, they're really struggling, right? You know who's not doubting? Lukewarm people. They ain't doubting because they don't care. They don't care. They're not doubting. What are they doubting? They don't care. And when hard things happen to them, they're not mad about it because they're going, well, I probably deserve it anyway because I really ain't doing nothing like I'm supposed to do anyway. See, they can make human sense of that. That's not spiritually correct, but it makes human sense. Right? So how can I prove this to you? Well, very simply. Well, Who's the most devoted person who ever lived? Who's the, who's, the, who's the person that never lost a round? And yet, the Garden of Gethsemane, he doubts. And he says to the Father, Hey, you th- could you take this cup from me? And the Father goes, Nope. No explanation. No. Mm-mm. No, see, in order to get to where you're going, you got to persevere through this doubt. So if he had to persevere through doubt, then it's going to be a regular part of our, our experience, isn't it? Yes, it is. If you're going anywhere or doing anything, 
And, and I don't mean doubting. I'm not saying that as you're devoted to God, you're doubting switching to something. But I'm saying that as you're devoted to God, you're doubting. Now, why is this happening to me? And why is that happening to them? And why is, yeah. You know, you're looking around trying to make sense of all this. So, as all this happens, how do we get resolution? That's the million-dollar question. And the Bible consistently teaches this same principle. It should, it, for some reason, it's elusive, and I don't know why, because it shouldn't be. Because you look at the great doubters of the Bible. I mean, to me, the two great doubters of the Bible is Habakkuk and Job. I mean, they let God have it. The reason I know that I can say anything that's in my heart to God is because I read Habakkuk. And I'm like, so if God would kill you, he would have killed him. So I guarantee you because, I mean, what he said to God, I'm like, I'm good. I know I can tell God anything. Job did it. Habakkuk does it. Asaph does it. David does it. Everyone in the Bible does it. Jesus did it. How do you get resolution? You go into God's presence. Now, nobody's going, wow, oh, whoa. There's the holy grail I've been waiting for. That's why everybody misses this. They're like, what? Oh, yeah. Notice the turning point. In, psalm, in, in this psalm at verse 17, he says, he's going, and this happened and that happened and this is bad and this is bad. And I'm ticked about this and I'm mad about this and this ain't right and this is wrong and everything's this and this and this and this and this. And then he gets to verse 17. He goes, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Now watch what happens. All right. Here's, here's why people don't understand this, the, the presence principle. is because you have to understand that truth is three-dimensional and requires the proper vantage point to fully see. It's very important. Truth is not two-dimensional. Me. Man, if I'm going to lose you, it's going to be right here. So I'm really hoping and praying that God's going to help us. See, the easiest way to explain this and what normally I would say in this situation is I would say, look, people, you know, it's a big church. There's a lot of people go to church here. So, I mean, let's just be honest. There's a lot of people, Right? One Tony, a lot of people, right? So my life consists of moments like, you know, I'm in Walmart trying to get something, you know, and, and I'm walking down the aisle because, you know, when I'm, I'm just going, I know what I want. Boop, I got it. I'm getting out of here quick as I can get out of here. And I'm not looking at anybody, talking to anybody. I'm just trying to get, 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 get. And so I'm doing my thing, and I go around this person, and, go, and all of a sudden I hear, hey, Pastor. I'm like, and I turn around. I ain't never seen you before in my life. <laughs> hey. Man, Sunday was awesome. Thank you. 
Don't know your name. Never talked to you. Never seen you. I don't know. I don't know where you sit. I don't know who you are. We go to a restaurant. It's a guarantee. Now, a lot of times I see you, you know, and hey, how you doing? I know who you are. I know your kids. I know your name. I know your wife. I know your husband. I know you. But a lot of times I'm like, what's up? <laughs> so there's a lot of people running around Gulfport, and they're like, yep, that's my pastor. They don't know me. They don't know me. A lot of you don't really know me. You know me this way, but you don't know me, know me. It takes a long time. See, because you know why? I'm not two-dimensional. So to really know me, you got to spend time around me. You gotta, it's going to take a time. Now, you can get to know me by listening to me, but it's going to take time. not going to be two or three sermons. It's not going to be a month. It's going to take years to really know me, right? Well, truth is the same way. God's the same way. The only way to get to know God is, and to understand his ways is to be around him. You got to be around him. You got to be in his presence. I don't care what you do. If without being in the presence of God, you're not going to know God. You can't know him without being in his presence. It's just, it just doesn't work that way. It's like, when, it's like looking at the front of a house and going, okay, I know that house. What you know about that house is you know the shape of the house. You know the color of the house. You know it's a house. You know the style of the construction. But you don't know the house. You don't know what it looks like on the back end. You don't know how, how deep it is or how, what it looks like, how the windows are. What the, does it have a back porch? or what is it? The only way, you can't know the house until you go in the house and walk around the house. You got to look at all four sides of the house. You got to go in. You got to look at the bedrooms and the kitchen and the bathrooms and look in, and then you know the house. But if you just look at one side of the house, you don't know the house. You just know that side. Now, what you do know, you do know some truth. You do know it's a house. You do know it's this color. You do know. So you do know my name, and you do know what I look like, and you do know what I sound like, and you do. But you don't know me, so you know some truth about me, but you don't know me because real truth is three-dimensional about anything, about anything that is three-dimensional. You got you to gotta experience it. You got to know it. And so understand this. I don't have time to develop it, but I do have to say it. All forms of heresy and false teaching are a result of reductionist thinking. In other words, every false religion, every cult has, is predicated on some shred of truth but what it does is it oversimplifies the truth. The way you create a false religion or a false doctrine is you make a three-dimensional truth two-dimensional. So you think about Jehovah Witness. You think about Mormons. You think about Seventh-day Adventists. What a great example. They're completely wrong. You know why? Because they take one simple truth and they just try to make it two-dimensional, simplify it down, and stretch it across a whole belief system. Same thing with Jehovah Witness. They take one 
little shred of something and they try to stretch it across and that's not, that's wrong. That won't work. That's falsehood. That's why you got, we, we, that's why we study all of the Bible. That's why we study everything that God has to say about everything. It's always reductionist thinking. Understand something. Falsehood is never more complex. No. It's less. It's the scam is always oversimplifying. Always. See, so then look, when somebody says, well, I don't think God knows what he's doing. They're looking around. They don't like what happens. Or somebody dies or something bad happens. Or there's some calamity or some catastrophe. So I don't think God knows what he's doing. And I don't like it. I can't follow a God who would do that. Okay. Do you know what he's doing? See what you just did? You just oversimplified God. See, this thing happened that you don't understand and you don't like, and you just took that and stretched it across God. You just Mormonized it. You See, I always say, oh, well, what's God doing? Tell me what God's doing. You don't know what God's doing. So what are you talking about? See, that's how you get derailed. And then not to mention the fact that, oh, and you who don't, doesn't know what God's doing think you know what he ought to be doing? You have a better way? You have a better plan? So think about this. Think about this. Most of the things an adult does, a, a responsible adult does, seems foolish to a child. Adult behavior seems foolish to a child. Why? Because the adult has greater knowledge than the child. So anytime something has greater knowledge, the lesser knowledge thing will always look at the greater knowledge thing and go, that seems foolish. Hmm? Is that ringing a bell for you? So if there is a God then in order to be God, he's got to have a greater knowledge than I do. Which means anyone with any common sense at all would know that it's going to seem like things he does are foolish to us. We're not going to understand because he has greater knowledge. That's just the principle, a universal principle. See, it, it, it only makes sense to believe that a real God will not always seem sensible to us, right? Because if he's a real God, he's not going to always seem sensible to us or he's not really a God. See, if God always made sense to us, then either God's not God or we're God's because the only way that can work is if we're the same. Don't you see that? It's so simple. The other thing we have to realize is that in all of creation... We're the only thing that are image bearers, and there are a lot of unique things about image bearers, but in this particular situation, the most important thing about us being image bearers that makes us unique and different from everything else is only humans have the capacity 
for self-awareness. Animals cannot be self-aware. Cannot be. Nor can trees or rocks or streams or clouds or anything else. Your dog is, has zero self-awareness. That's why they lick themselves like they do. If they had self-awareness, they wouldn't do that. They don't have the capacity for self-awareness. But we do. So what happens when we get in the presence of God? How does this thing work out? Well, the presence brings about three things. The first thing it brings about is self-clarity. Self-clarity. The reason why you have to wrestle this out, shout this out, yell this out, anger this out in the presence of God is because every time, every successful person in the Bible that goes through this does it in the presence of God, and it always works out the same way. The first thing that happens is self-clarity. Look at verse 22. He says, I was so foolish and arrogant, I was like a beast before you. Now, how did he figure that out? In other words, have you ever gotten home and your dog come strolling up and said, and just apologize for yesterday? Said, you know, now before you come in, I know you had a long day, but you're about to see this thing over here, and I want to know, I want you to know up front, I'm sorry about that. So look, he becomes clarity. There's self-clarity. So when we're upset with God, what happens is we're blind to our arrogance. Because all we can be is, I'm mad that God allowed this to happen. The only way, listen, you're not going to convince somebody that they're blind and arrogant. But the presence of God will convince them. You just tell them, why don't you argue this out with God? Just argue it out with Him. And if they say they have, they're lying. They're not. Say, well, then together we're going to argue it out with God. That way I know you really are. It's going to bring self-clarity. It only makes sense to believe that a real God will not always seem sensible to us. Of course. Of course. It only makes sense. So presence, first of all, brings self-clarity. Number two, presence brings end clarity. End clarity. That's the beauty of me and the pastor. You can just make up any word you want. Just stick a hyphen in it and it becomes a word. End clarity. Look at what happens in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. So what brings peace is this end clarity. He says, surely you will set them in slippery places and cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation in a moment. They're utterly consumed with terrors. Hmm. Now, this isn't just some simple sort of, you know, blind hope that, you know, there's going to be ultimate justice, which there is. But, but think about it this way. There are many challenges to the life of believing in God. Absolutely. But they pale in comparison to the consequences of not believing in God. So what, what God does is God doesn't remove the challenges of the present strain of following him, right? No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't make it easier. All he does is say is 
give us revelation. He shows us in his presence. See, because when we get to know him, we get to know about him. You can't know God and not know that he's holy. Right? And what happens when you start to understand the holiness of God? The first thing that you understand is, uh uh-oh, you don't want to be on the wrong side of that holy God. Because that's going to be a punch that you ain't going to be able to take. Right? That's what he sees. He gets end clarity. See? Who's in the greatest danger of all the people on earth? The one who says, I can't believe in a God who would allow such things. That's the person who's in the greatest danger. That's who better get in the presence of God. You see, because when you say, I can't believe in a God who would allow such things, then the, first, the next step is, well, okay, Einstein, what do you believe in? I'm all ears. What you got? Hmm? Uh, 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 uh. Huh? What you got? What, what, what are you rolling your dice on? Hmm? Give it to me. Where are you going to go? What's plan B? See, the very source of our frustration is based on the fact that there has to be wrong or right. See, if we didn't say, look, I can't trust a guy who would allow that to happen. In order for you to even say that, you must inherently believe that there's a wrong or a right. Or you wouldn't be mad about something. See, because if, if all truth is just, is just uh, the same, well then you're not mad because that happened because you can't say that's bad. So if I'm mad because God allowed this to happen, then I'm inherently admitting that I believe that some things are wrong and some things are right. And how can some things wrong and some things be right if there is no God? And so therefore, you're admitting there's a God and then you're absolutely, ridiculously, foolishly saying there is a God, but I'm not going to serve him, which is the ultimate condemnation. So where are you going now? Where does that road end? Why don't you just pour gas on your head and light the lighter? What logic is that? See, who defines good and bad, right and wrong? And no one's going to argue with you. They can't, because the minute they say, I don't believe in right and wrong, slap them upside the face and dare them to get mad at you. You're like, what you mad about? Oh, that was wrong, what I just did? Well, then here, let me kick you. It takes 10 seconds. So you get self-clarity, your arrogance dissipates and you realize, you know what? I'm a beast. I mean, I'm mad about all these things that are happening, but what, what you realize is you get in the presence of a holy God and you go, wow, I'm not perfect. I may not be as bad as them, but I'm not perfect. 
I don't meet the grade. And, I don't, and then you realize, boy, what happens if you're on the wrong side of a holy God? It's going to be bad. And then you get end clarity. And then number three, what do you get? You get God clarity. Then you get God clarity. God clarity. Now look at how he gets God clarity. In verse 22, he says, I was so foolish and arrogant, I was like a beast before you. Then he says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Now, has anything changed? Has any of his struggles gone away? Has any of the seemingly prospering of the wicked around him changed? Nothing has changed, but he got God clarity. Here's what, he, here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know what I realized? I got in the presence of God, and I started arguing with God and telling God how I felt about this and what I didn't understand about this. And, I mean, I was just yelling screaming and giving it to him, and we were just going to keep on going until something sorted out. And then I realized God started to show me. He's been with me the whole time I've been going through this struggle. He's not saying, now listen, you're imagining this pain that you're facing all the time. He didn't say that. He's saying, I know this hurts and I know this is bad, but I'm with you. I've been holding your hand through this whole thing. Yeah. See, life is hard. You start trying to Make life fair, you are going to be one miserable individual. Because it's never going to work out that way. You're like a little kid trying to tell your parents what to do. You don't understand. You're saying, Mom and Dad, don't go to work. Forget work, stay home, and let's eat ice cream and run around in our diaper all day. Don't do that. It's not fun. You shouldn't do that. That little kid doesn't understand the ramifications of not going to work. Don't don't take me to the doctor. Are you insane? That's a bad thing. You shouldn't do that. Because a child doesn't understand the ramifications. See, we're in the presence of a greater... a, a much greater, a much higher knowledge and so oftentimes what he does is going to seem to us as very unsensible it's because we're a child in his presence but I want you to understand the evidence that God loves you is the fact that you're still here even though you're mad at him see what I want you to know is that when you're frustrated with God when you're heartbroken and devastated and aggravated and you, I, I want, I listen, I want you to accuse God. You blame God. Anybody that tries to tell you, oh, a mature believer would never accuse God or blame God. You, you've never read your Bible. Just make sure you're not doing it. To anyone and anywhere else but him and in his presence. That's the principle here. You feel the way you feel. And you bring it straight to him. 
You go to him. Don't talk about him behind his back, even though that's impossible. But still, the point is the point. Don't do that. Talk to him about it. And he'll give you God clarity. And then I want you to understand something. That when you're, down, when you're in your prayer closet or you're wherever you are and you're yelling and screaming and yelling into the pillar or hitting the wall or doing whatever you're doing, just in that moment I want you to realize something. If God didn't love you, would you be alive right now? Because if God didn't want you to be alive, you wouldn't be alive. So the fact that you are is just some evidence to you that, hey, God loves you. He loves you. He's with you. He knows it's hard. He understands. Just like you love your ignorant little beautiful child, but they're ignorant. And he looks at you and goes, you're so cute, but you're dumb. But you're cute, but man, you're dumb. You're just sucking on that thing. I mean, you're just dumb. You think you got it all figured out. You don't know nothing. Because none of us are without sin, are we? So we can never really experience injustice. Now, that's hard for me to say. Because nothing cranks me up quicker than injustice. It's one of the outliers that drives my life. See? It, injustice, my, my belief and understanding in God, so whatever he considers to be, he shapes my right and wrong. And so according to that dynamic, anything that I perceive to be injustice within that realm, I go ballistic about Somebody mistreats a kid, I go crazy. You take advantage of an elderly person, I'll probably hurt you. You, the list goes on and on and on. You don't do that. That's injustice. But, 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 let, but now, if I'm claiming injustice, can I even experience injustice? Because in, in order for me to cry injustice... I would have to deserve justice. And I don't want justice. Uh-uh. No. See, it's unjust that I'm standing here right now. That's unjust. So when you get down to it, the only one who lived without sin experienced real injustice to save us from real justice, didn't he? See, the only real injustice that was ever experienced was Jesus because he was the only truly innocent one. And he took on injustice to save us from what? Real justice. So thanks be to God. That there's tons of things in this world that don't make sense, that don't line up, that don't add up because we're kids in the presence of a 
greater and wiser God to an infinite degree, right? And I just want you to be encouraged tonight that when you, when you, when you work really hard to live for God, when your heart's desire is to serve Him and to be pleasing to Him, then there's going to be greater challenges, isn't there? And he's a great trainer. He's a great trainer. He can take anybody with any skill or giftedness, or he doesn't need anything. All he needs is your heart. And he'll make an eternal champion out of you, won't he? Sure will. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together tonight. May it help us, shape us. May we come into your presence.